good morning. Good to be with you, church, to gather again, begin a new week in our Lord, to begin a new week gathering together amongst his people, to begin a new week being refreshed and reminded of the promise that we have in his son. Again, if you are new here this morning, uh, visiting for the first time, we want to extend a warm welcome to you. We're glad that you've chosen to join with us this morning in our worship. We pray that you not only be um, welcomed here and feel, feel welcomed by the membership here at our church, but most importantly, uh, that you as well would be refreshed in the hearing of the gospel this morning. Uh, my name is Brett. I am one of the pastors here. If we have not met, um, please make a point on your way out the door to just uh, introduce yourself. If you are new, recently visiting, I'm glad to Put a name to a face and continue to get to know you here. This morning we're going to be considering the portion of Scripture in Mark chapter 14. So would you turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Mark chapter 14? We'll be focusing on the first 25 verses of this chapter. Mark 14, let's begin reading as we hear God's Word. Verse 1. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him, Jesus, by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of Purinard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. And on the feast, on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who's eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, is it I? He said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping the bread in the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he'd given thanks, he, he gave it to them and they all drank it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Would you pray with me? Let's ask the Lord that he would help us as we hear his word together. 
Father, we look to you this morning, recognizing that as we turn in the pages of Scripture, we, we come to somber and holy ground, that we come to a portion of this Scripture that is overwhelming in its contrast of devotion and one of betrayal. And Lord, we recognize that in our honesty and in our humility, that we find much of the same thing within our, our own lives, our own ambitions, even our own actions this week. We confess that for many of us, we are a conflicted people, that we long to be devoted to you. But Lord, we see how often and how frequently that our actions, our thoughts, and our words betray that we love something or someone else much greater. So Lord, we come in, in recognition of this reality, in humility, knowing that our great need is not simply to see acts of devotion or examples of betrayal, but our greatest need is to see your Son, to see Him for who He is, to see Him as He's revealed in the pages of Scripture. So Father, we bring our lives under Your Word, under its authority, and we place ourselves in submission to you and what you've revealed to us in your Son by word and by spirit. And Father, we pray that you, we would, you would take the authority of your word, the goodness of it, and all that it reveals, and all that it convicts us of, and all that it encourages us within. And Lord, that you would cause, by the ministry of your Spirit, for it to bear good fruit, fruits of repentance that it would bear the, the fruit of sacrificial living, that it would bear the fruit of generosity, that it would bear the fruit of glad devotion and, and worship unto you. Lord, the purposes for which you're sending your word forth this morning, would you accomplish them by your might and by your mercy? And we ask all of this in your son's name. Amen. Well, as we turn to Mark chapter 14, recognize that we come to the final days of Christ's earthly ministry. From this point forward, chapter 14, we're going to read of betrayal, abandonment, arrest, trial, crucifixion, and eventually death. What Jesus commonly refers to and what is known as his passion or his suffering, for more specifics. And it's through this section that these themes of betrayal, abandonment, arrest, eventual death, these themes and these accounts, these dialogues that are here, are filled with this repetition of the pain of abandonment and the agony of suffering. Should be no surprise to us. In fact, that's what Jesus has been repeatedly saying as we go up to Jerusalem. Here's what awaits me. Three times he's been telling his disciples what is ahead of them is this very matter of betrayal, arrest, being mocked, even spit upon, scourged, that he would die and that he would rise. The passion narrative within Mark's gospel, it serves ultimately to illuminate all that Jesus has been doing and saying leading up to this point. We read all of it, we take all of it in, knowing of how chapters 14, 15, and 16 will resolve. Jesus' life and ministry up until this point has been pointing towards this very moment as Mark is, by the Spirit, illuminating what is ahead of Christ and spotlighting specifically his true mission, his true identity. You've read of what Jesus has said. Son, your sins are forgiven you. Be healed. Rise and walk. You've heard of what Jesus has done. Walking on water. Providing bread. Calling the multitudes to follow after himself. Even healing a leper. But why has Jesus said those things? Why has Jesus done those things? Mark 14, 15, and 16 are included here so that we would understand the true reason. Not the opinions that we might have as to why Jesus would say such a thing or do such a thing, but the very reason why God has sent him to say and to do. What do the words and works of Jesus ultimately point to? Why do they point to what he's come to do? 
this. We have to see the betrayal, the arrest, the crucifixion, and death of Jesus for this very reason, because we cannot understand the words and works of Jesus until we see the death of Christ. One of the repeating themes within Mark's gospel is that actually nobody understands Jesus. Nobody understands his true mission and purpose. The crowds often misunderstand him. The religious leaders are ignorant of his true identity and actually want to kill him. The disciples, even in their proximity to Christ, are often dumbfounded as to who this man is and what he's actually come to do. And it's not until we see Jesus upon the cross that we ultimately understand why he's come to do what he has done and said what he has said. It's not until we see him as he is in this portion of Scripture that the good news of what Mark has been writing actually makes sense. What is that? Well, it's that Jesus is the servant king. And that he's come to liberate his people by giving his life as a ransom to rescue them. We're beginning to see that Jesus is the true and greater Moses sent by God to bring out a new exodus. To bring his people out of bondage. To bring them into the kingdom of light. Not from a slavery of Rome and not from a bondage of occupation of Roman soldiers. But from a liberation, as Mark has been explicit to say, a liberation from Satan. From sin. And from death. But in order for the full weight of this sacrifice to be felt, Mark wants us to see what it cost. Abandonment. And he wants us to see what Jesus must accomplish. Sacrifice. And so it's through these themes that are woven together here of abandonment and betrayal, contrasted alongside faithfulness and devotion, that the glory of the gospel light begins to shine bright in everything that Mark is writing. So let's walk through the text here as we consider Christ, our Passover lamb, this morning. Notice, first of all, the contrast of devotion. Mark 14 begins with a contrast, and it is most specifically a contrast of devotion. As you read through this, it may be helpful to see that we have another Mark sandwich. It's a technique that he uses throughout the gospel to tell the story of Christ. And it's usually a three-part story in which there's one event that's of utmost importance wedged between two other events that stand in contrast to the center. So you have an encounter an interruption, and then another encounter, which is really the most important piece, and then a resolution again of that first encounter. That's why we call it a sandwich. Mark does that here by way of contrast. Verses 1 and 2, we read that the chief priests are seeking how to arrest Jesus. But then right on the heels of that, in verses 3 through 9, he tells us about this woman who anoints Jesus with this costly perfume. And then as soon as that event ends, we're brought back again in verse 10 to Judas, who we're told is seeking an opportunity to betray Jesus. Meaning, the resolution of the religious leaders, verses 1 through 2, that are seeking to arrest Jesus, is resolved in Jesus and Judas seeking an opportunity to betray Jesus. And in the middle of that, there is this woman who's seeking the opportunity to anoint Jesus. Do you see the contrast? Devotion surrounded by betrayal. The contrast of devotion. And what does Mark note? That the setting for all of this, for all of these events, just happened to be days before the the Passover feast, the feast of unleavened bread. Those words are a very contextual clue, a contextual setting within the Hebrew minds. Why? Well, because in Exodus chapter 12, the Hebrew people are in bondage to Egypt. And after sending nine plagues upon Egypt to judge Pharaoh and his grasp upon God's people, God sends a tenth and final plague, a plague of just judgment that would fall upon everyone through the death of the firstborn. 
The plague, though, could not just pass over the Hebrews simply because of the fact that they were the descendants of Abraham. Other plagues had, in fact, done that. For the people of Egypt were experiencing the plague, but there the people of God in Goshen, fat and happy. But this tenth and final plague would be different. The mere fact that they descended from Abraham was not sufficient. There was additional instruction that was given to God's people in this tenth and final plague. The only way for a Hebrew family to escape this final plague of judgment of death was to put your faith in God's sacrificial provision. The innocent lamb would be killed and his blood would be put over your doorpost as the sign that you're putting your faith in the trust of God's provision so that death, judgment, would pass over you. And sure enough, God, as he always is, is faithful to his word. The plague came. Judgment came. There was not one house in which someone was not dead. Either your firstborn or the lamb that stood in your place. The monumental announcement of salvation through judgment was so important, not just to get God's people out of Exodus, but to understand how God always redeems his people, salvation through judgment, faith in God's promised sacrifice, that God gave instruction to God's people saying, you will remember this. I'm giving you a feast so that when your children ask, hey, how'd we get here? You can say, good story. Let me tell you. And each year, you will have this feast of unleavened bread. And you will eat the lamb. And you will roast it. And you will remember how God brought you out. This feast shall be celebrated. It's in the setting of that context that Jesus begins to walk into Jerusalem and the setting of Mark 14 unfolds. Consider then, within that context, the devotion of this woman says back in verse 3 that while he was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii, about a year's wage, and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She's anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Just as it is again here this morning. And stepping back, we have to see how this entire scene, really this entire home, is a picture of mercy and of thankfulness. Because where does this take place? Well, it's in the home of this man, Simon. What are we told about Simon? Well, he was a leper. And what we can infer from that is he is no longer because he has a house full of people. And his name is Simon, unknown to us, but perhaps known to Mark's readers, and that he was a man healed of leprosy. He would have been an outcast for some portion of his life, cut off from all relationship, and yet here he is with a house full of people, feasting, hosting a party, Jesus is in the home of one who used to be an outsider, but now he's an insider. He used to be unclean, but now he's been restored. He used to be untouchable, but now he's passing, passing the bread and the sauce and saying, welcome, come in. I'm glad you're here. This is mercy. And this mercy is intended to be really the melodic anthem of the gospel that plays in the background behind everything that unfolds and what Mark says and what comes next. Because within this home, you have a woman. A woman that comes to Jesus, pours out this aromatic oil upon his head. 
filling the home with its fragrance. You could have not have been in that home that night and turned around and begun to look, what is that smell? Where is that coming from? Everyone in the house would have known what was happening because as John tells us, the fragrance filled the entire house. And this act of devotion, it would have been very costly. Most likely her inheritance passed down within the family. And just like the widow at the temple, this woman gave all she had. This act of devotion was quite symbolic, according to Jesus, because Jesus steps in to defend her when others would say, what a waste. And pragmatism also often looks at worship as a waste. He says, actually, what she's doing is quite fitting. She's preparing my body for burial. And by this comment, gives us, into, gives us insight, really, into the focus of Christ. People are eating and feasting, rejoicing, what is Jesus doing? He's thinking about his death. No, this is quite fitting. She's actually anointing my body for burial. But latest, alongside that, we're supposed to consider something else. We're supposed to consider what we could also say, the devotion of Judas. Back at verse 10. Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. In contrast to this woman, we're meant to observe the reaction of Judas to all of this. Not simply in the way that he was seeking, looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus, but John in his gospel tells us who was that one who said this is, this, is, this is a waste? And this is said with such indignancy. John says it was actually Judas, the one who spoke up and voiced that concern. He was disgusted. He was offended by this woman's wastefulness. John says this, but Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Now remember, Mark arranges this passage very intentionally. The passage is laid out in such a way that we are meant to see unmistakably the contrast between this woman's act of devotion and what is Judas devoted to? The woman is willing to sacrifice all she has to honor Jesus. Judas is willing to sacrifice Jesus for the honor of money. The woman is willing to give up treasure to gain Jesus. Judas is willing to give up Jesus to gain treasure. The woman's seeking opportunity to anoint Jesus. Judas is seeking opportunity to betray Jesus. Do you see the absolute betrayal and the absolute heartbreak that is about to come upon Jesus in, in the contrast of this moment? It could not be more blatant. The wickedness of Judas's betrayal and the beauty of this woman's act of devotion, it stands intentionally in just juxtaposition to what Jesus deserves, adoration, and what he gets, betrayal. We're meant to feel the weight of this tragedy. We're meant to mourn over the grief of this drama that's being played out before us because the innocent is being betrayed and what he's given is evil, even though what he deserves is adoration. The extravagance of the woman's gift shows, really, that she alone understands Jesus' immeasurable worth. And in light of the greatness of what Christ deserves, we find the stinging pain of betrayal. What he deserves, what he's given. There are several psalms that provide the commentary in this juxtaposition. Psalms written by David had fulfillment in his life, but ultimate fulfillment 
and David's greater son, our Lord Jesus. Psalm 41, verse 9, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, he lifted his heel against me. Psalm 55, verse 12, It's not that an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It's not an adversary who deals insolent with me, then I could hide from him. But it's you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend, We used to take sweet counsel together within God's house. We walked in the throng. How many times does the narrator remind us it was Judas, one of the twelve. Of all that Christ spent time with, of all those that he called to be to come to himself, of all those that Jesus spent nights out in the wilderness on the boats marching through Judea, through Galilee, you, my sweet friend, that we took comfort together beside me, lifting up your heel against me. Friends, the injustice and the sting of betrayal, it's meant to grab us as we read this. It's meant to awaken us to the horror of such an act. We admire the woman And we're repulsed by Jesus, by Judas, and and rightly so. But we must also read further into the story and take a longer look, considering what this story actually says. Not simply admiring the woman and being repulsed by Judas, but asking the question, what about me? Because as I look at my life, As I look at who I am, created by God, placed on this planet, put breath in my lungs, I recognize the reality of my own life. And I recognize when I read Scripture that sin is not simply doing the wrong things or failing to do the right things. Sin is betrayal. Sin is treasonous betrayal and has been rightly said cosmic treason because of who this sin is against. For all sin is against God and it's done in the face of His perfect purity, goodness, holiness, beauty. It's done all before Him. So read the account of Judas not simply to despise the betrayer, but ultimately to despise the betrayal of our own sin, to read ourselves into the narrative. What does the Bible say about betrayal? What does the Bible say about sin? Who is God and who am I? Don't gloss over this narrative too quickly without thinking through those categories of what Scripture gives to us. And in thinking through that, as you see your own guilt, the Scriptures would compel you to not dismiss that guilt, to wipe it away, but to actually look straight at it and say this guilt is actually fitting. And the scriptures would say then bring that guilt and the reality of that guilt before this Jesus. Because yes, he was betrayed, but for a reason. The reason of his betrayal is so that he could actually redeem sinners. And so when we see the guilt of our own sin and the betrayal of what it is, we don't stuff it, we don't hide it, we don't justify it or make excuses for it. We confess it and we repent of that and we say, please, Father, forgive me, help me. That is why this narrative is here. Not just so that we would feel the sting of injustice, but so that we would see the injustice of our own sin. There is this contrast of devotion. But within this setting, we're also given a window into a covenant. A covenant of redemption. There's a contrast and a covenant. It has everything to do with this understanding of fellowship. Notice how it's prepared in verse 12. The first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us to go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water 
will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. The disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared for the Passover. And you read through this account and you see this repeated emphasis of preparation. Where should we go to prepare? Jesus' very detailed instructions, almost like chapter 11 is preparing for his entrance into the city, that there's preparations and details and conversations made about a room and a place and disciples being sent ahead to lay the table, to set the elements, to put the dishes. There's great detail in the preparation of this meal that's about to come. Certainly there are scriptural reasoning and warrant for how the Passover meal was to be prepared, how the lamb was to be sacrificed, roasted, eventually eaten. But the emphasis upon preparation also becomes our clear clue to the significance of what is about to follow. Mark includes this for a reason. The intentionality on this meal that is to come. Think about how the intentionality and the preparation for this meal emphasizes the desire of Christ to partake in it. In fact, Luke records this very thing in his account of this. Luke 22, verse 14, when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Hear that in light of the preparation that is going before them in this table. Christ's earnest desire to share this meal with his men before he suffers. Now, we being 21st century Westerners probably fail to grasp in some degree the honor that would be felt in being a participant with someone else at this Passover meal. But this was a tremendous honor. This was a sweet moment of fellowship to where you may have your family nucleus, but you may have neighbors or a visitor or a sojourner who happens to be there and you set the table and you eat together. And who you ate this meal with, as many would not be at their homes as it would be done in Jerusalem, you would gather together with a select group of people and that would be an intimate meal. So who you ate this meal with was of great significance. And this intentionality is just but one more glimpse of our Lord's delight to accomplish the will of his Father and the ransom of his people. Because moments later, Jesus would be out in a garden and he would be praying. And in that prayer, we get a little more insight as to what is Jesus thinking as he says, go and prepare. John 17 When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I've glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you've given me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you've given me, I've given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I and them, you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you've sent me and loved me and loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. 
and these know that you've sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. That is a wonderfully sacred, beautiful prayer concerning our Lord's heart for His people. The very things that weighed upon His soul as He entered into this house to eat this meal concerning the intentionality of all that it would proclaim and what He'll explain in a moment has to do, Christian, with gathering you to Himself. That you may be one with the triune God. Can you fathom that? The intentionality to which Christ has gone to gather his people to himself that they might enjoy the oneness that the Father and the Son enjoy. Friends, this is a mystery that we will spend all eternity in awe of and rejoicing in. And Christian, every act of intentionality, every detail here in this march towards the cross of Jerusalem is carried along by Jesus' all-determining decision and all-consuming desire to honor His Father and draw you to Himself. Have you paused just to meditate on this truth? Have you given time just to consider the intentionality of Christ to draw His people to Himself that we might enjoy fellowship with the triune God. How might that change the way you read His Word? How might that change the way that you approach Him even in prayer? Do you say, Father, in heaven? And do you come saying those words with the very tenderness of knowing that you have a heavenly Father and that He receives you gladly because of the Son and that you rejoice in coming in all boldness and confidence and faith because the Son has brought you into His presence being the perfect mediator. The intentionality that Christ brings as He seeks to draw us to Himself to the glory of the Father. There is this preparation for fellowship, but sadly, right in the middle of this, there is the violation of fellowship. Look at verse 17. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who's eating with me. And they began to be sorrowful and say to him, one after another, is it I? And he said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who's dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it has been written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Of course, I'm willing to bet that as readers, we know who the betrayer is. We come to this story knowing Judas and his treachery. The disciples do not. They're in real time hearing these words to the point to which they're saying, Me? Is it, is it me? And Mark's point here is to show how utterly scandalous the identity of the betrayer is. Remember, traditionally, in celebrating the Passover, there would have been a household, extended family, perhaps neighbors, a traveler, other children, and guests. Meaning that when Jesus says, it's one of you that will betray me, it would be natural to start looking around the room and saying, who don't we know here? Who invited that guy? Is it him? You start looking around to the outsiders. But Jesus presses further. He doesn't just say it's one of you. He says it's one of the twelve. One who is dipping bread into the dish with me. Meaning, it's not some political zealot out there that's going to betray me. It's not some shifty character in the corner that you're all looking at right now. But it's someone close. So close that we're actually sharing the same bread, 
the same sauce. One of the 12 that I've shared every day with for the past three years will betray me. The emphasis here of this violation of intimacy between Jesus and the disciples is is primary. It's unmistakable. It's intended for us to see just how gruesome and gut-wrenching the betrayal actually is. And yet, Jesus is not the powerless victim in this. He is not one who's gotten caught up in the riptide of all of these events and somehow being sucked out to the sea of judgment. That's not at all what's happening. Because Mark says in verse 21, For the Son of Man goes as it is written of Him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he'd not been born. Peter picks up on the same emphasis in his sermon in Acts 2. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through Him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. It would be the very same emphasis that Joseph stands up and looks at his brothers in Genesis 50 and says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive today, even as they are. The refrain of the Scriptures is filled with this constant tempo of man's responsibility within his actions and God's sovereignty over all things. It's inescapable. Divine providence neither cancels human freedom nor relieves human beings from moral choices. Both currents of divine foreordination and human will intersect within Jesus' words right here. The Son of Man will be betrayed. He will be handed over in God's holy and determined purposes through the willing betrayal of Judas. This is the testimony of Scripture from cover to cover. And here is what we can say. Judas made a willing and responsible choice that has eternal consequences for which he is accountable for, yet at the same time, God's providential direction and order was fulfilled through his actions. Friend, do not misunderstand this as fatalism. Your decisions matter. Decisions that you will stand accountable for. And most importantly, your decision and your response and what you do with Jesus Christ will matter. This is a wonderfully astounding passage to consider the sovereign plan of God, specifically how the Son of God would be given up for the very purpose of redeeming His people through the evil deeds of His creation. God will not be mocked And nor will be he taken by surprise, somehow thrown on his back foot, responding to the decisions of evil people. We rest in the justice of God, and we rest in the wisdom of God, and we rest in the almighty power of God. That is why Paul, when he navigates through the waters of Romans 9 and 10 and 11, comes to the end of chapter 11 and says, oh, the depth the riches, the wisdom, the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. That is the response that you have when you begin to see the responsible decision that we make and the decisions for our actions and the sovereign authority of God over all of those actions. There is this violation of fellowship, but it doesn't end there. It ends here for our morning in verse 22 with this assurance of fellowship. As they were eating, he took bread. And after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. 
He took a cup, and when he'd given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Now, remember that the the elements of this Passover meal in which this setting takes place would have been so familiar to the disciples. Growing up in a Hebrew home, how many Passover feasts had they celebrated? How many times had they heard these words repeated? How many times was the bread broken? The cup of blessing lifted up? How many times had they been through this ceremony, and yet this one was entirely different? It was familiar, but transformed forever because of what Jesus does and how he rewrites the script of what they assumed would be said. If Jesus had been following the traditional structure of the meal, he would have, after the prayer, just prior to eating, said, this is the bread of the affliction which our fathers ate in the land of Egypt. Let everyone who hungers come and eat. Let everyone who is needy come and eat the Passover meal. But instead of then passing the bread and everyone eating in silence, Jesus then says, take, eat, my body. Everybody would have looked up at that moment and said, that's not what it says. What is Jesus saying? These few words become the transformation of the meal and the illumination by which we see its ultimate fulfillment and significance. In centuries past, the people of God ate the bread in the wilderness that was miraculously provided for them, ensuring that they were nourished and sustained in the wilderness. And to hear Jesus say, all that that bread is, I am. Take, eat, This is my body. That was the unmistakable connection between himself being God's provision for his people to nourish and sustain them for their journey. The dots were unmistakably connected. Take the bread and eat is the same as saying, this is the real food I need. Christ's provision for me is what I need. And we call it a supper because it's the means by which God has given to us as his people to nourish and to sustain us, reminding us of God's provision for us when we had none, that he's provided his son to nourish and sustain our faith. That's why our confession and why the Baptist Catechism uses the language of this meal being for our spiritual nourishment and growth and grace. That's where that language comes from. The significance of what it actually testifies of. And the transformation continues not only in the bread, but Jesus keeps going within the meal. The cup. Within the Passover meal, there were typically four cups that were shared throughout the evening. Each cup representing some significance of the various promises that were made in Exodus chapter 6. What were those promises? that God gave to his people before the exodus? I'll bring you out of Egypt. I'll deliver you from slavery. I will redeem you by my power. And fourthly, I will take you to be my people. Each cup represented one of those promises. The third cup, the cup of blessing, would have been lifted up, and it was at that moment in that third cup that I will redeem you with my power, that significance that Jesus again departs from the script, transforms the meal, showing that all the promises, types, and shadows contained therein are fulfilled in him as he lifts up the cup of blessing that would be held up and drank as the participants remember God's powerful ability to rescue from bondage. He gives thanks and he makes a statement similar to the bread saying, this is my blood. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. The cup of blessing. The promise of redemption. It's me. 
The blood of the covenant points back to Exodus 24 where Moses took the blood of the sacrifice and threw it upon the altar and the people read from the book of the covenant and said, we will uphold all the words. Our Gospels tell us that Christ specifically says not only is this a covenant, this is a new covenant. And the reference to the new covenant is in which God promised in Jeremiah 31, verse 31, He would accomplish the conversion of His people, bringing about the forgiveness of their sins, the restoration of His people unto Himself. And what is unique about this covenant, the new covenant, is that God keeps it and makes it on behalf of His people, and then He gives to His people all the benefits of that covenant. He vows that He will secure all the conditions and keep all the promises, and His people reap all the benefits. This cup is my blood, the blood of the new covenant. I keep all the promises I satisfy all the demands. It's thrown upon the altar. And the reference to blood being poured out is a reference to Isaiah 52, which tells that this will not just be a paper cut. It will not just be a grimace and a moving on, but it would be the vicarious, atoning, bloody nature of the sacrifice. It would be death. So Jesus takes these very familiar images and themes of the Passover and he transforms them around himself. The types and the shadows of the old covenant give way to the substance now of this new covenant. And when we come to the Lord's table, we're mindful of all of this, partially anchored in the long tradition of remembering and trusting and waiting for the provision of God for his people. And yet we're participating in something entirely new than just a Passover meal. Something entirely transformed. Hebrews 10 verse 11, every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, Old Covenant, which can never take away sins. But when Christ has offered up for all time a single sacrifice for sins. He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until His enemies should be made a footstool for His feet. For by a single offering, He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And friends, what good news this is right here. In a single offering, shedding His blood upon that cross, Christ giving His body over to death, Christ has satisfied the terms of the law. Christ has satisfied what our sins deserve. And with open arms, He receives His people to receive all the benefits from which He has accomplished upon His triumph. Our hope this morning is the words and work of Jesus Christ. And this is tremendously good news for every single person that you need to hear this. Because what it says is that in our natural condition, regardless of how long you've been in a church, regardless of what sort of home you've grown up in, regardless of how much Bible you've memorized, in your natural condition, we are all scandalously guilty Like Judas, we are those who abandon and betray the true goodness to serve our ambitions, our opinions, our desires, just like Judas. As you read this, you might think a few pieces of silver seems like a cheap, trite payment to betray Christ. I assure you, we've done it for far less. We've been created to honor Him, to image this God in every thought, in every word, in every deed. But in knowing that, do you feel the pain of your own betrayal? Every thought, every word, every deed? Can you think of the countless times in your life where it has not been lived as a perfect representation of His worth? Because that's what the Scriptures call us to. Every thought, every moment, every deed is a perfect representation of this God that we've been created to image. And a failure to do that is a betrayal of who we are. 
created in God's image for God's purposes. There is no one who escapes. That's the reality. And God, in his mercy, sends his spirit to convict us, to prick our conscience, to know that that is true. But however much I may want to suppress it, I know that is true. I'm accountable that I've been created for something. And God, in his mercy, sends his spirit to convict us so that we might feel that wave of guilt, knowing full well, I've betrayed my God. I've betrayed my Lord. And the promise of the new covenant is that it's not my obedience that establishes or keeps me before God, but it is this obedience of this one, the Lord Jesus, that satisfies the wrath of God and delivers the people of God unto himself, freed from all sin, the payment being paid, completely satisfied and welcomed and then upon that lavishes all the benefits of being united to this God, one with Him. And it's only by that new covenant, it is only by that one who fulfills the demands of that covenant that He then welcomes us by His open embrace. And that's what we hear in the Gospel. The promise fulfilled on my behalf. And when we realize that, friends, then we become like this woman in the house, gladly giving all we have to our Lord. The contrast of devotion is stark, and it's meant to rattle us that we would see as much as we'd like to be like the woman in and of ourselves, we are like Judas. But in Christ, he brings us to that place where we gladly say, I will give all. I will give all. Not out of burden. His commands are not burdensome. I delight to do his will. I delight to give my all. Friend, do you have this hope? Do you have this hope this morning? Do you know something of this experientially? Not just in some story you've heard that your mom or your dad have told you. Do you know this by experience? And the declaration of the new covenant is that this proclamation is given to all who are weary from striving after trying to obtain it somehow by another means and by which God has provided. And it's a welcome invitation to every single one who feels the weight of their own betrayal and sin to come to receive forgiveness in Christ, believing that He is the sufficient sacrifice to cleanse us from our sins and restore us unto God. So that we here, chosen, adopted, accepted, Washed, forgiven, welcome. Come by faith and rest in the finished promise of Christ. Father, we do pray this morning that you would take your word and that you would cause it to bring about the great, eternal, gracious purposes that you've intended. Lord, it's only by your word and by your spirit that we have any hope. It's only by the great announcement of what you've accomplished on our behalf that we should have any reason to hope this morning. So, Father, we look to you in faith on the basis of your provision that you've given to us, your Son, the Lord Jesus. We place our hope and our confidence in him. And, Lord, we pray that you would bring about the tremendous fruit that comes from such a gracious act, we pray. Amen. Well, it's only fitting that we recognize what a tremendous privilege we've been given as God's people to share this meal together. The bread and the cup, they are filled with significance. Not simply in their remembrance of what they speak of, nor because of any merit that they contain within themselves, but through faith in what Christ has revealed through them. That's why it's filled with significance. We come to the table by faith because of what Christ has said they proclaim. My body, my blood. Our confession reads in chapter 30, the supper of the Lord Jesus was instituted by him the same night in which he was betrayed. It's to be observed in his churches to the end of an age. The age is a perpetual remembrance and display of the sacrifice of himself in his death 
It's given for the confirmation of the faith of believers in all the benefits of Christ's death, their spiritual nourishment and growth in Him, and their further engagement in all and to all the duties they owe Him. The supper is to be a bond and a pledge of their communion with Christ and with each other. Worthy recipients who outwardly partake of the visible elements in this ordinance also by faith inwardly receive and feed on Christ crucified and all the benefits of His death. They do so really and truly, and not physically and bodily, but spiritually. The body and the blood of Christ are not present bodily or physically in the ordinance, but spiritually to the faith of believers, just as the elements themselves are present to their outward senses. We come by faith because of what it testifies. And in coming by faith, friend, we are spiritually nourished and strengthened. So as we come to the table this morning, recognize that we're looking in a couple of directions at the same time, especially keeping in mind the Passover. We look back considering the types and the shadows of the Passover and the promises given in the Last Supper. But not only do we look back, we look within. We're examining ourselves, confessing our own sin, responding in faith. But we're not just looking within, we're also looking around. Veritas Church, we are celebrating the fact that we've been united to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. We're recognizing the body. And then we also are looking ahead. We're looking ahead remembering that there remains remains another meal. One in which we'll share within our resurrected bodies and we drink with Christ in the kingdom of our God. Interestingly enough, those words of Jesus in Mark 14, 25 about not drinking from the cup again until he drinks in the new kingdom, means he left off the fourth cup. The cup that signified of God's promise to his people. What was that promise? I'll take you to be my people. I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord who has brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. The fourth cup that we will drink. The cup that we look forward to. The marriage supper of the Lamb. That declaration. He is our God. We are his people. He dwells with us. The narrative is finally resolved. Sin is broken. Kingdom of righteousness remains. It's a fitting celebration as we raise our glasses and feast. And so friends, considering the significance of this meal, we must be very particular as to who shares within it, considering the significance of all that it proclaims. It's a meal provided by Christ and made significant by His life and His death. It's a meal for sinners a meal for sinners who are covered in the blood of Christ and transformed by His grace. And Jesus has given authority to His church to identify and affirm these fellow members, participants, joining them to His body through baptism. So that's why we're careful to say before this meal, it's for members of Christ's church, either this church or another gospel-preaching church, and those who've been baptized upon their profession of faith in this Jesus. And we're particular about this. Not because we're stingy. But in response to what Christ has laid out concerning the significance of what this meal is about. So much so, friends, that to eat and to drink apart from faith in Christ would actually be to eat and to drink judgment upon yourself. That's why we're particular. Perhaps you're familiar with the instructions in 1 Corinthians 11, but Paul also has further instruction in verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill, and some of you have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. Church, we come in faith, 
And as we come in faith, there is simultaneously a reverence and a joy for all that we are participating in. There is reverence as we come recognizing all that this proclaims. And there is joy in recognizing all that this proclaims. Christ atones for the sins of his people. And we're satisfied and well fed. Let's prepare to come to the table. We'll prepare to come to the table by singing this hymn together. We can remain seated as we pass out the elements, but you'll find the lyrics for this on page 11 of our bulletins. The bread and the cup will be passed out, hold, and then let's eat and drink together.